0: So, there's still a meeting at 2 p.m. after our morning service, and they're still studying the book of Luke. Uh, The book of Luke uh, is being studied in preparation uh, for their study in the book of Acts next year. So, there will be still uh, midweek meetings today, uh, this coming week, right? No? Not? Okay, never mind, just in case. You do uh, have it in your schedule Or you can also pray for these meetings, Fridays, all of them actually on Fridays, one in Riverside, in North Hollywood, in Chino, and in Cerritos. Now, next Sunday, we have our Christmas worship celebration on December 18th. So, it's always evangelistic, and it's always a time of fun. So, I know that some of you, your groups are already preparing, right? No? Okay, some of you are just going to stand up here. And look silly, but that's fine. We just want to celebrate God's goodness. Amen? So this morning, we will continue with uh, our study on the book of Exodus. Are you learning a lot from the book of Exodus? Okay, this group is uh, learning a lot. This group. I know this group in the middle will probably not answer whatever my question is, but that's fine. You know, when you, we study the Bible from Genesis to Maps... Maybe your Bible doesn't have maps at the end. I don't know. Every time we look at the Bible, we always want to see how this particular book, how this particular chapter, how this particular verse relates to Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is just about one story. And that story is about Jesus Christ. So in every book of the Bible, we want to see how Jesus Christ is portrayed. Pastor, I didn't read about Jesus Christ in Genesis. I didn't read about Jesus Christ in Exodus. I didn't, because Jesus Christ was born in the New Testament. But you see, the Old Testament and the New Testament have an umbilical cord. They are related to each other. And all the books of the Old Testament talk about the coming Messiah. So I won't belabor what we want to share with you this morning, but I do want to make an announcement, a very quick announcement. We have the CCFLA website. Yes? Are you familiar? Some people from around the world are looking in our website and watching our services over there and you know if you do have some comments or suggestions please go on the website, send us an email some of you know my personal email in songnolan at yahoo just send out uh, whatever it is, a comment, a suggestion but please make sure that you do indicate your name if you don't indicate your name how do we know who to respond to? yes? let me give you an idea when I was still in the Philippines, I got this comment. There's no name. We cannot address it. There's one with the name. She said, why do we sing all new songs? He said, all new songs. I have a policy, one, only one new song. And she said, why did we sing all new songs? But she indicated her name and her telephone number. So I called her. I said, ma'am, which of the songs were new? Oh, the second song that you... Ma'am, that is song number three on our songbook. How about this other one? Mom? that song 16 on the songbook. Oh, they are probably just new to my hearing. But we were able to communicate. We do not want to take anyone or anything for granted. So if you do have a comment, a suggestion, or even a criticism, please put indicate your name so that we can address it properly. Is that okay? This morning, our brother Bien will come and Give us God's word from Exodus 14, so let's pray for him. God Almighty, we just want to thank you for our our worship of you this morning. Thank you for the freedom and liberties that we have. And as our brother Ben comes up here, Lord God, to share your word, I pray that you fill him, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And allow all of us, Lord, to see beyond who is up here to deliver your word. But allow us, Lord, to hear your voice through him, the one whom you have anointed, To deliver your word to us this morning. Allow us, Lord, hearts that are willing to listen, more importantly, to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Bien. You might want to turn up your cell phones.
1: Uh, Welcome again, everybody. Uh, Good morning. Um, again, if you're here, um, this is CCFLA, and um, so if you guys have been with us, we're going through the book of Exodus, and if you know, um, last week we talked about Exodus 13, so this week we will be in Exodus 14, and I have titled the message simply, Who is the Lord? And we will be going through what this question entails as we go through our passage today, but uh, before we get to that, if you guys have your Bibles, would you turn to Exodus 5 And verse 2, and we will just read this before we get on with the rest of the message. And so if you guys would turn there, I'll I'll read it out loud. Exodus 5-2 says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And if you guys don't know, this is after Moses... And Aaron first confront Pharaoh about uh, the, the situation of the Israelites. And this is his response. Who is the Lord? And as we endeavor to answer this question today, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, truly in this time, there is no way to understand Holy Scripture without the Holy Spirit first being in us. And so for those who are here, may you soften their hearts and loosen their minds that they may, be, they may be able to think about these things that are going to be said. And all the more, may you be the one to uh, work in their own hearts. Father, for you are the only one that changes people. And as for me, may you only use me to speak your word and your truth and nothing of my own. For Father, I am simply a vessel for your glory. And so would you do that here And again, in all these things, as we celebrate the birth of our Christ, may you remind us of what he has done, his death on the cross, the life that he lived. And may we think of these things not just as another decoration for the holidays, but something truly that happened that saved us as a people. And so with all of these things, Father, may you continue to be with us in our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so. And because you guys are already in Exodus 5, why don't you just turn a few pages later to Exodus 14? And as we go through Exodus 14 today, um, there's only going to be three main points, though. um, We will expand on them. It is simply this. The first is God's sovereign hand found in the first nine verses. The merciful deliverer. That is who the Lord is, verse 10 to 22. And then the holy judge in the final set of verses. But before we move into that, I read to you guys Exodus 5-2 simply because of this. We need to understand that Pharaoh first asked, who is the Lord? Now, if we go back to the past few chapters of Exodus that we have gone through, we've walked through the 10 plagues that happened in Egypt, and they are the uh, turning the water of the Nile to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock boils hail, locusts, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn, with that, the death of the firstborn being the last of these plagues, which ultimately caused Pharaoh to release the Israelites, to drive them out, as the Bible says. And we've seen the institution of the Passover, as our brother Nate talked about last week, wherein God commands the Israelites to perform certain actions to remember their deliverance from Egypt. And this was another point made last week. Upon the Passover, upon the institution of these commandments, for animals, there were two options that you could take for an unclean animal, make that clear. The first is you redeem it by taking the blood of another, and the second is you kill it. And then another point that was made was that every Man must be redeemed, indicating that all men are unclean. And do not forget that fact as we go through the message today. And that is a fact that every man before holy God is unclean. And so what did the obedience of the Israelites to God's commandments indicate? Simply this, who God's people were. And so if you have your Bibles, would you guys uh, turn to chapter 14 if you're not there already. And as we go through the first section, God's sovereign hand, and so it reads, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pirith between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so if you guys look at this passage, the Lord tells the Israelites to turn back. And to some, we may think as though, did did God um, give them wrong directions? Are they going the wrong way? To the human mind, it may seem as though that they were going the wrong way. Because if you were living in that time, the path that the Israelites took was this. Leaving from Egypt, if they were to go north from there, because the promised land, as it says, is Canaan. And so if they were to move north from Egypt, and they were to go the quickest route, it would only, in 40 days' time, it would not be that long. And why do I specify 40 days' time? Because of this, the path that the Israelites ultimately take and them being afraid by the time they get to Canaan, God lets them stay in the wilderness for 40 years a travel that would only take 40 days, they would end up traveling this wilderness for 40 years. And along that coastline would be multiple um, fortresses of, of Pharaoh and watchtowers where if they were to walk along that path, these Israelites who cower so easily would have been faint of heart. And that's something that we come across later on as well. But there are two more reasons that they didn't go this route. The first is this, that in Exodus 3.12, if you guys want to turn there, it says that God told Moses that they would serve him on Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. And if you know what, uh, where Mount Sinai is, it is where the Israelites would return to and where God would give Moses the Decalogue. That is the Ten Commandments. And so they would ultimately go back to this place, which, mind you, is south of Egypt southeast rather and then the second reason is that God knew that the Israelites were weak of heart as we already said if you turn to Exodus 13 verse 17 it says when pharaoh let the people go God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines although that was near for God said lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt see God knew who his people were He knew that they were afraid. He knew that they were weak of heart. And to any person, again, living in that time, the Israelites' turning back appeared foolish, and all the more it emphasized the turning back of the Israelites. See, apart from the way that they came, we need to understand this. The location that they were at, at this point in this narrative, is these are the Israelites And around them are mountains. And then this is the Red Sea. And so if we're to picture this clearly in our heads, there is only one way in which they can escape or be attacked. Because around them are mountains, and across from them is the Red Sea. And here we see God ultimately setting up, in a sense, the glory that he will receive through the destruction of the Egyptians, which is something we will uh, talk about uh, later on as well. And in verse 4 specifically, if you guys would look to it, it says, God again hardens the heart of the Egyptians. We need to be careful to note God's sovereignty in this. God's sovereignty does not remove man's Agency, and that means their ability to act. The reality of us being able to choose Israel. But our ability to choose is not outside of the sovereignty of God. We do not overpower God's sovereignty. And so God does so in order that he be glorified through the death, the destruction of the Egyptian army. It says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. See, this statement, if we're to be quick, we, we think it's just the same as what Moses was saying to Pharaoh, but this is different. God does not say so that you know that I am the Lord. He says that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God, see, Lord Yahweh wasn't just content with just Pharaoh knowing who he was. He wanted the entirety of Egypt to know who the Lord God of Israel was. And he would display that later on in this chapter as we move forward. And so we move on to verses 5 to 9. And it says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pirith in front of Baal zephon See, we, we need to look at what just happened. Apparently, Pharaoh, who had no more business dealing with the Israelites, now again has a vigor, has a drive to reclaim what he has lost after the humiliating defeat over and over through the plagues and of ultimately the Israelites leaving Egypt. A theologian describes it in this way, but this is the stupidity of the wicked, that they only dread God's present hand and immediately forget all that they have seen. See, to Pharaoh in response to God multiple times throughout the plagues, he says, this time I have sinned. Pray to your God that he remove these plagues. In those moments, apparently God was so real to him, and yet now those past blights are just a mere memory to Pharaoh, and he seeks to reclaim what he thinks is his. See, the Egyptians at this time, when it describes Pharaoh and his army, saying the chariots along with the horses, what makes this even a grander of a victory for God is this. The Egyptians, the reason they were an empire is because at this time they perfected war on chariots and war on these horses. These cavalries that they would use in order to overtake their enemies, they would be so much more powerful because of their mastering of this. And if you know, he takes 600. On each chariot, typically, there were three men. One who would be controlling the horse, another, an officer who would be overseeing the battle and commanding the remaining troops inside the horse, and the third actually following out on those orders. And so if we're to take 600 chariots... And then from that, we add the three people per chariot. That's at least 1,800 soldiers going out to what? To conquer the Israelites who were not battle ready, who had very little experience in fighting, and all the more, they were afraid. And so the reaction of Pharaoh is an overreaction. He, he's he's. In a a sense, he's trying to destroy the Israelites as he conquers them. And These chariots weren't just like little chariots that you see, you know, in downtown and all these horses, people riding in carriages. No, these chariots were deadly. They were fortified. They had spikes coming out of the wheels in order that they would cut through the opposition. This is what the Israelites were going up against. And so there was this fearsome army headed for them. And yet... Read in verse 8. The Israelites left defiantly. They were liberated and so they leave defiant, heads held high, boasting, defiantly leaving. But then we move on just a few verses later as we see the work of God as the merciful deliverer. Read with me in Exodus 14, verse 10, it says, "'When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, "'and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, "'and they feared greatly. "'And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. "'They said to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt "'that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? "'What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt?' Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That is the reaction of these Israelite people. Just a few verses before, they walked out of Egypt defiantly. And now, when they are faced, when they see Pharaoh's army coming upon them, they instantly... A call out against Moses? Why did you take us out of Egypt? Why didn't you just let us stay there and continue serving as the slaves of these Egyptians? Look back to Exodus 4.31 when Moses addresses the people and he tells them of God ultimately rescuing them. And then just a chapter later in Exodus 5.21, their reaction is the same. Why have you done this thing? To put that into perspective, imagine the blind man that Jesus healed. If Jesus took off the, the, the blindness of that man and that man said, what, why have you done this thing? If Jesus were to, when he took out the demon from the other man on, on the seashore, if he said, why have you done this thing? It to the person that was uh, dropped or rather lowered down from the roof by his friends. And Jesus healed this lame man and he said, why have you done this thing? What if these people reacted in this way? The person healed from leprosy, if he were to say, Jesus, why have you healed me from leprosy? Do you see how ridiculous the claim of these Israelites are? These weak hearted Israelites. And to make their claim even more irrational. In verse 11, it says the Israelites reference the wilderness. And I don't know if you guys know much uh, about uh, the Jewish community and Jewish people, but camping is not one of their strong suits. It is not a part of their, their customs. But then we see that God sends them into the wilderness. If you would turn just a chapter before in Exodus thirteen twenty, this is what it says, And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. But verse 21 says that God, appearing as a, a theophany, something that, that we can see in a pillar of cloud and smoke led the way. He led them through the wilderness. And because of this pillar of cloud and smoke, they could even travel at night. And and what is the point I make when I'm explaining to you why this is important? How could they have been misled if it was God that was leading them through the wilderness? This pillar of cloud and smoke through the night in the wilderness is leading your people. So how could you have been misled? So where do these baseless claims of the Israelites come from? And yet often we find ourselves in the very same situations. That we question where God has placed us in for we think He has left. And yet in verse 22, It says God never departed from them. And so read with me in verses 13 to 14. It says, And Moses said to the people, the the response, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses was fully confident in the saving power of the Lord. He says, see salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Salvation, as we sang is only from the Lord. For the Egyptians, the way that this verse closes, the way in which God would display His power would be seen as we come to the end of this chapter. But even before that, in verse 14, essentially what Moses tells the Israelites is this, shut up, be quiet, because sit and watch. As God will be the one to deliver you. God will be the one to work salvation this day. And this phrase, the Lord will fight for you, will be true for the remainder, rather in large part of Israelite history, where the Lord will continue to fight for them. In the likes of Gideon, in the likes of King David, the Lord will will fight for his people. And so as we move on to verse 15 and then through 18, it reads, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chari- chari- chariots. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. See, the Lord tells Moses exactly how they would be saved. The Israelites didn't have to worry about how it would come to fruition, because... As unreasonable as it may have seemed to them, God parting the water, God made it clear how the Israelites were going to be saved. Even when the people were in such disarray, listen, when the people were doubting God and how he could take them into the wilderness with no way out, with the Egyptians right on the border, God did not simply walk away as a result of their ingratitude for his goodness. See, often us, humans, people like us, the moment we are not respected or the moment we are not thanked for the things we do for others, we walk away because we think that they should appreciate us more for what we've done. And yet God here doesn't do that. He continues to stay by the side of those who all they can do is complain. All they can do is whine. He displayed himself as God to them, to his people. See, salvation, again, is solely from Yahweh, solely from the Lord. And that reality is made clear in this circumstance that the Israelites find themselves in. Again, do you realize the Israelites have nowhere else to go? The Egyptians are closing in on one front, surrounded by mountains on the others, and the sea. Where do they go? If not only through the working of the Lord God. And in verse 17, if you guys would read, it says, again, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, resolving him in his disposition to pursue the Israelites, to claim them back, and make them again slaves. And ten times in Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And ten times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so know this, that the God is not just forcing this upon Pharaoh, but... The restraints that would hold back Pharaoh's sinfulness, his wickedness. God allowed him to harden his heart towards these things that he would not let the people go. And now again, God hardens his heart, strengthens his resolve in wanting to pursue the Israelites. And we need to understand this. And make note of this when we go to our last point. But before then, let's move on to verse 19 through 22, where it says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night verse 21 then moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided verse 22 and the people of israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left What is the significance, if you go to verse 19, verse 20, what is the significance of the angel of God moving from leading the people in the front to protecting them from behind? See, apart from the the practical implication of protection, we need to understand the situation. Moses parts the sea. He parts the sea, right? How many do you think the Israelites are? In, in Exodus 12:37, it says that there are 600,000 men, 600,000 Israelite men. And then we add on to that, the women, the children, and the livestock. Do you think the Israelites would be going at a fast pace across this ocean, not ocean, across the sea? Do you think that many people can cross that space in such a short amount of time? And what were the Egyptians riding? Weren't they on chariots? Weren't they on horses? I don't have the, st- the statistics to it, but I'm pretty sure a horse is much faster than a human on foot. And so if these Israelites were to cross, wouldn't the Egyptians, already being in the sight of the Israelites, wouldn't the Egyptians have gained on them? Wouldn't they already be behind them, on their tail? And yet so what does it say in 19 and 20? The angel of God comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Can you understand this? That the angel of God comes between these two forces, divides them, shows darkness to one, blinding them, and then shines light to the other that they may continue to cross the sea. I mean, if that is not supernatural, I am not sure what is. And yet this is how God would save his people. Do you see how God as deliverer takes every measure to ensure the safety of his people? That is why he is the merciful deliverer and we'll expand on that later when uh, we talk about him as the holy judge and so look back down at your bibles if you have them in verse 23 to 31 rather first through 23 to 25 it says the egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians verse 23 says the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea so you think why would Pharaoh go across the sea because this is the situation the Israelites are crossing across the sea not over it the sea is parted with the walls of it on the left and on the right to any person this is not normal all the more, it's not marsh, it is dry land that they are walking across. So what would push Pharaoh to pursue the Israelites on territory that they know nothing about? All the more, events, things happening around them that they couldn't possibly fathom, and yet they pursued because God had said that he would be glorified by the destruction of the Egyptians and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of the Egyptians to push them into the midst of the sea. Pharaoh remained obstinate. He remained firm in his resolve. Would you guys turn with me real quickly to Romans 1 to read with me in Romans 1 verse 28. This is what it says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God would be glorified in the judgment of a proud king who did not honor him. God would be glorified in the judgment of a proud king who would not honor him in verse 24 if you go back to exodus 14 it talks about the morning watch and this is simply to put it all the more into perspective because the morning watch was was a timestamp it was the last watch of 3 4 hour night watches and so this one particularly lasted from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. meaning that the israelites had crossed the red sea at night Because again, 600,000 men, indicating more than 12 or 1.2 million people, it does not take just a few minutes to cross the Red Sea. And so, through the whole night, they were crossing. And that is vitally important that by the time they reached the end, it was sunrise. But, verse 25, verse 25, read it with me. It says, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They realized who it was that was fighting for the Israelites, but they realized too late. And on top of that, The army of Pharaoh, this grand army who was a master at their craft of warfare, was thrown into chaos, into disarray, into confusion. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And and we'll be here for for a short uh, while go back and read it says the sea returned to its normal course when morning appeared remember it is the morning watch from 2 to 6 a.m and the the end of it that the israelites now the sea would return to normal when the morning appeared why the morning exodus 14:13 This is God further enforcing the promise that he made. In Exodus 14, 13, does he not say, For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. When the morning came, the Lord's victory and the utter defeat of Pharaoh's army would be displayed as clear as day in front of the Israelites. Because it says in verse 28, A distinction is made again between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Remember in the plagues, God distinguished between the land of Goshen in which the Israelites were and the land of Egypt. He protected them from the fourth plague onwards. And yet here we see another distinction in verse 28. This is how it describes the Egyptians. Not one of them remained. Verse 29 but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea each and every one of the Israelites lived. Do you understand that that when morning came and they saw these the sea tumbling back down as they were. And in broad daylight you see the pharaoh and his armies being drowned and destroyed. By the crashing of the waves. Is that not security. That the army. The enemy. Which you had. Has now been conquered by God. And yet. Some of you may be asking this question. Couldn't have God. Saved the Israelites. And kept the Egyptians alive. Was it. Fair for God to slay the Egyptians for his glory. Earlier we were in Romans, but again, I would, like to, I would like for you guys to turn back to it in Romans 9. Romans nine fourteen through 18, this is what it says. Romans 9, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. See, for those that ask the question, why would God kill the Egyptians and not let them live in the process of saving the Israelites? I ask you this question Is it unjust for God to punish sin? Is it unjust for God to punish sin? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So then if sin means death and Pharaoh in his obstinate, obstinacy towards his resolve of keeping the Israelites to himself and his pride not honoring God, is that not sin? And so, for him to be conquered by God and to be judged, is not that just? And so, following this process, was not Moses a sinner? So, does that not mean Moses himself was deserving of God's wrath? He was, because he was a sinner. Let us not fool ourselves thinking that we are worthier to be saved than those who are lost. We did not find God. God found us and made us his own. In this story, we are not Moses splitting the metaphorical Red Seas of our lives. We're not conquering anything. We are the Israelites cowering in fear, told to shut up as God works salvation, him and him alone. God did not save the Israelites because they were good people. He saved them because they were his chosen people. Both equally sinners, both equally deserving of the wrath of God, and yet God found favor in one group and said you are my people you are my nation he had mercy on them when he would be glorified by delivering judgment he is also glorified in saving them We, we need to make this Realization clear that salvation is the work of God alone, and we contribute nothing to it. Salvation is the work of God alone. And in Exodus thirty to thirty-one, how do the Israel's react? The Israel's, the Israelites, react. It says, "Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians." And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. We sang earlier, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can I say Later on, then to you, he has said, the one whom for refuge to Jesus have fled. Those who seek refuge find it in Christ. And here we see how the Israelites respond. This fear that is talked about, it is a fear of reverence toward Yahweh, the Lord of the nation of Israel delivered them from the Egyptians and imagine anyone met with such an event that happened that unfolded before them surely for that moment they would regard God they would glorify God they would see God and lift up his name but as we'll see through the course of Israelite history how quick are they to forget even when they reach Mount Sinai We see them worshiping this golden calf in place of worshiping the one true God. But some, some would remember the day of salvation. And when they would administer the Passover feast, they would say to their sons, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, as it says in Exodus 13.8 there will be those that remembered the deliverance of the Lord, the reality of their salvation, freedom from bondage away from the Egyptians. And is that not the promise in Christ? That is, it is in him and in, in his life that we are made free, no longer bound to sin. We are made free in Christ. And so in conclusion, as we've talked about the sovereignty of God, who he is as the deliverer and who he is as the judge, who is the Lord? To Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, he is the God of the Israelites, the one who brought forth the plagues, the one who conquered his armies and being more powerful than their own God. He is the one who true God. And to the Israelites, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the merciful deliverer and holy judge of the wicked, the one who parted the Red Seas and delivered them from their captivity. He is Yahweh, and he fights for them. And with that, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, to the proclamation of Pharaoh, who is the Lord, you answered. You answered in such a way that to us is so unfathomable that you would display your power in the ways that you have through Holy Scripture. And Father, are we not deserving of the very wrath that was carried out onto these Egyptians for they were sinners and so are we. And so Father, if there are any of those here who now are thinking deeply about these things, whether or not they are the ones who have been shown mercy on, may we proclaim to you and may those believers plead on behalf of them, Father, have mercy on us, sinners. Father, may you make yourself known to us. For it is you who chooses, it is you who desires that we come to know you. And for those whom have a relationship with your son, Father, may we not think lightly of it. But that through the birth of this baby boy in a manger, And through his life, his 33 years of life on earth, never for a moment, disobeying you, dishonoring you, but his whole life living unto your glory, dying on the cross for the sins of those who will come to know you. Father, let us rejoice for being a part of your family. And just as these Israelites, may we not Just keep this for a moment, but rather, when these days come, may we rejoice and share it for generations upon generations of the day of salvation that you have given to your people. And in all these things, we pray in the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Before we break to our uh, groups for discussion, can we just show this slide to everyone? What's the question? What's the real question? What's the real question? What's the real question? The real question, my friends, Is who is the Lord to you? That's the real question we must all answer. The Lord is the Lord. You and I cannot do anything about that. That's settled. From eternity past, that's settled. The real question is who is the Lord to me? Because unless and until you and I have realized Romans 3.23, I'm part of that, all have sinned and, all f- and fall short of the glory of God. I have to realize that sin accompanies with it the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's not just who is the Lord, but who is the Lord to me. And unless you and I make a decision to accept this free gift, you are not going to be able to answer that question. That question will be somewhere up in the air, in the universe. And you will not be able to personalize it for yourself until you come to that point in saying, I am guilty of sin. I am guilty of death. But only Jesus Christ paid for the penalty of my sin and I accept His free gift of eternal life. And by God's grace and through his Holy Spirit, I will live out the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. Who is the Lord to you? It's like you're a salesman and you're making a presentation and you've laid out the product and you left. Did you close the deal? Did you close the deal? Unless they sign on the dotted line, you didn't close the deal. Unless you're able to ask the person, would you like to pray with me and receive Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, you haven't closed the deal. So if you're that person here this morning, and you're still iffy about who the Lord is to you, then may I encourage you, sign on the dotted line and take a step of faith. You may be young, you may be old. Doesn't matter with God. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't even... You know, your sin, the gravity of your sin, doesn't matter. Jesus Christ paid for it all. It's a free gift. But you must make a choice. Have you made that choice? Have you, by faith, opened the door of your heart And invited Jesus to come in. To be your personal Lord and Savior. If you have not yet done so. There is no better season. Than the season of Christ. The season of Christmas. To make that decision for yourself. Is the Lord to me? If you have not yet done so, you might want to pray with me in your heart, although I encourage you to verbalize it so that the devil hears that you're coming to faith in Christ. Just pray wherever you are, Lord Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner and I am deserving of death. But because you died on the cross in my place and you brought all my sin with you, I not only have the forgiveness of sin, I can come into relationship with you and have eternal life. By faith, Lord Jesus, I open the door of my heart And I invite you to come into my life not only as my Savior but from henceforth I ask you to be the Lord of my life. God, I can't do this by myself. So I trust in the power of your Holy Spirit now living in me to help me turn away from my sin and to live out the rest of my life giving you glory and honor and praise by faith I thank you for giving me eternal life today and I want to glorify you in my life by sharing what I've learned about you and living out a distinguished life, a life that is set apart from the world for your glory and in your name I pray Amen And I encourage you this morning, if you sincerely turned over your life to Jesus Christ, among many, many other promises, he promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ, and if you've been listening to Exodus 14, and sin continues to pursue you, may I encourage you, That God is greater than our sin. And that if you just allow him, he will protect you. We can debate about all of these things happening in Exodus. Was it real? Can we prove it? Can I give you food for thought before we go into our discussion? Before Exodus 14, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the whole known world during that time. And God said, you will not see the Egyptians anymore. They will no longer be a world power. Let me ask you, is Egypt, the nation of Egypt, Still in the conversation of world powers today? Did God fulfill His promise? Yes. God did it for His glory. Amen? Let's go to our discussion questions. Are you comforted by the holiness of God? Why or why not? Are you pursuing holiness? Sin pursues us. So the question (laughs) is, am I pursuing holiness? Holiness. And third, God is both deliverer and judge. How does that affect your view of Him and of yourself? You see, many times we want to compartmentalize God. Well, if God is a God of love, then He cannot be a God of justice. But God is all of this and more. So let's not confuse ourselves. Are you comforted by the holiness of God? Why or why not? Are you pursuing holiness? And third, God is both deliverer and judge. How does that affect your view of Him and of yourself? So if you could be so kind enough to move to your discussion groups, again, we'd like to remind you: nobody is forced, nobody is forced to share. And whatever you do share will be kept in the confidence of your small group. In CCF, we do not pass the offering plate. We do have a tithe box at the end. We have envelopes for you to put your offering. And drop it in the box thank you and we pray that you will invite someone for next Sunday when we have our evangelistic worship and celebration let's pray God Almighty we just want to thank you for your word thank you Lord that you can be trusted because you are faithful because you are God thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we can live out our lives Lord in accordance with your word Thank you, Lord God, that we have time to share with one another about who you are and what you can be in our lives. And thank you for the privilege of being able to speak and preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please break out into your discussion groups now and we can maximize our time together.